All right, so be, as I mentioned in the prayer, be in prayer for those who are not with us today. They are sick. Um, Pastor Dave and his family this morning, especially last night at Valentine's Day dinner, he began to feel ill, and then he um, left and called me, let me know that he had a fever, that he might not be here. Um, he might not be able to preach today. Um, so he texted me this morning and said he's, he's out, so keep their family in your prayers that Piper and Autumn would, would be safe. Uh, so in light of that, uh, I will be preaching this morning. And uh, just as we began to finally march steadily back through the Gospel of Mark, after having a very long break in the Gospel of Mark, um, now once again we come to a screeching halt from the Gospel of Mark, because I do not have a sermon prepared on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we'll be looking elsewhere this morning. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at one of the Ten Commandments, and in particular we'll be looking at the very first command, which I think we all know by now, which is, what is it? No other gods. You guys can, you guys can speak. <laughs> That's right. God says you have, you shall have no other gods before me. And I um, confess it may be a bit strange to only preach through one command um, and not do a full series walking through the entire and the entirety of the commandments, but this is what I have prepared for this morning, and Lord willing, we will get to do a full series on the Ten Commandments again one day. I think that would be something that would benefit us all, and I would certainly enjoy it. And to be clear, this is not going to be an extensive study of the first commandment. Uh, this will be somewhat of a brief overview um, if you've been in the men's group, you know, these, these commands of God are exceedingly broad, and it takes a very long time to get through one. We are just started the fifth commandment um, about a month ago, and I suspect we'll be in that for a few months. Um, there is a lot packed in each of these commands. Uh, so today, it will just be a very basic uh, overview and understanding of, of what God has for us in his word. In this command, we will uh, see what it requires of us. We will see what it forbids. And from there, hope, hopefully, we will find some hidden idols within our hearts um, and look to Christ in faith and repentance. So, uh, with that said, would you please stand, open your Bibles, and join me as we read from God's inspired, inerrant, and holy word. This is Exodus 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask this morning that you would teach us that you would mark your word in our hearts, that you would show us our sin, show us where we may have crafted idols, and may we repent and look to Christ in faith. Lord, move the preacher out of the way, and may your word speak to each of us as the Holy Spirit works in, by, and through your word. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So before we get to the command itself, I think it's important to start off with the three motivations 
that the Lord gives us for obeying these commands in verse 2. Anytime we hear God's law, we need to be reminded of these motivations that God has given for his people to obey. Um, God, in his wisdom, has given motivations for obedience in the preface to the Ten Commandments, which is why we read verses 1, 2, and 3. And so being as God, in his wisdom, placed these motivations before the law, it's wise for us to consider them before we hear what it is that he is commanding of us. And it is first, in verse 2, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. This is the highest motivation for our obedience because he is Yahweh, the most high over the earth, the entire earth, all that is in heaven and all that is under the earth. He is the almighty, unchanging, eternal God. He is the being of all beings. And he has the right to impose these laws on his creature. He is the being of all beings who has given us our being. This God has the right to demand obedience and subjection from everyone because he is the maker. He's made us. He has chosen how we ought to live, and he has commanded it to us. That is first, I am the Lord. Second, he says, your God. I am the Lord, your God. The strength of this argument that God is making is not only is he Yahweh, the sovereign ruler over all things whom all obedience is due, but he is your God. In the immediate context, the people of Israel were under God's government. They were a theocracy, meaning not only was he their God, but he was their king. Functionally, he ruled over them and he placed dictates upon them for how they should conduct themselves in the land that he was giving to them. He commanded where they should go and who they should engage in battle with. He was their king. He says, I am the Lord your God, and what did this king, this God, do for his people? He goes on, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He delivered them. This is the third motivation that God gives. Yahweh, the being of all beings, who claimed for himself a people who had demonstrated his power visibly by pouring out plagues upon the Egyptians until Pharaoh let the people free to worship their God. This alone should excite people to obedience. That this mighty God, who will not compromise with worldly rulers, who hears the cries of his people, who has the power and authority to crush the enemies, and deliver them from their slavery, says to them, I am the Lord, your God. What an honor and a privilege to be chosen as the people of God, as the people of this gracious and merciful God. God has revealed himself to so many people throughout history, especially we see in the scriptures, but God revealing himself to people is not always synonymous with God choosing those people he has revealed himself to. We see this again in the Egyptians, right? God revealed himself to the Egyptians. 
but he revealed himself to them in his wrath. Right? They were vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Right? He revealed himself to them, but they suffered. But to the Israelites, his revealing himself to them meant great salvation. He blessed them. He gave them his word. He called them his own. Yahweh delivered Israel from a cruel and slaving ruler. And to his people, he is seen as a merciful deliverer. And as this merciful deliverer, he gives them laws to live by. And he gives them these good commands, this good law, so that they may live in a way that brings honor and glory to the one who has saved them. And so it is for those who are in Christ, for those of us here who have put their faith and trust in Christ. God did not say, obey these laws so that you may be saved. He says, you have broken my laws. You have not obeyed these commands. Look to my son who has obeyed perfectly. Look to him in faith. Be saved. Now go and sin no more. Desire to live a righteous life. The motivations that God gave to the people of Israel are just as relevant for the motivations that he's given for us. They are the same motivations. He is the Lord, whom all obedience is due. He is our God, who brought us out of the house of slavery to sin. See the abundant grace and mercy of God. He could have just said, obey, because I said so. That would have been enough. Right? If God said, obey, I'm telling you to, that's enough. And though that would be enough, God deals with us and our weaknesses as sinners. And there are times where God appeals to reason. Right? Christianity is a spiritual religion. There are mysteries of the faith, but it's also a thinking religion. We are by God's design rational creatures, and sometimes by our stubbornness we need to be provoked to obedience, and we are forgetful, we can forget what God has done for us, and these three motivations serve both as a logical appeal to our minds and as a reminder to us as to who this God is and what he has done for us. So these are the three strong motivations that are given in this command, and there are two, there are many characteristics, but there are two characteristics of this command, which you all probably know, you hear me say this probably nearly every week, that they are Binding, meaning all people are obligated to obey these commands. God says, you shall not, and you shall. It's not you should, and you should not. It's not optional. The American shall have no other gods before him. The Chinese shall have no other god before him. The Korean shall have no other god before God. It is for all people of every age and every place. It's binding and it's permanent. These commands were written by the very finger of God on a tablet of stone. No other commands were written on tablets of stone. These are binding commands whereby all people are obligated to obey them in all times and all places. And the people of Israel after some time began to believe the law was good for many, but not for all people. And that's familiar to us because we live in a culture that's very similar. Uh, we live in a postmodern society. Some hate the idea of God and hate the idea of being told that God has a standard set for all people. And what we often hear is, what's good for you may not be good for me. You might want to obey those laws, but who are you to say that those laws do not apply to, to others or to myself? 
They claim circumstances differ, and this may offer flexible patterns of conduct. They hate fixed norms, but God has a set standard, and he has set his law on two tables, stone, and he will not compromise his holiness. This law is binding and permanent, and these commands show us what it looks like to live a holy life. And so this is for all ten commandments, binding, unchanging, eternal. So now that we have the proper motivations, the three motivations that we've seen for obedience, and we've looked at some of the characteristics that this command is binding, binding and permanent, let's now read the command in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land, out of the out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So what is being commanded? On face value, it's fairly obvious to us all, I think, that we shall have no other gods before God. This command directs us to the right object of our worship, who is Yahweh, and it makes a distinguishing mark between him the one true God, and false gods. This command informs us of who it is that we are supposed to worship. In the command itself, we have gods, lowercase g, they are false gods, who we are not to worship. And we have God, the uppercase g, uh, who we are commanded to worship. So what is required in this command that we see this distinction? There's false gods, and there's a one true God. Well, it's required to worship the one true God. Well, it requires, firstly, a right knowledge of God. This command requires a right knowledge of God. There can be no true worship, no right thought of him or faith in him until he is known to us. This applies to everyone, even the Israelites. How would they know that they were to worship Yahweh unless he had revealed himself to them? Dave Allison touched on this in a sermon a few weeks ago when he spoke of general revelation and special revelation. Right? It is by general revelation that we know a God exists. Romans 1 is clear. Romans 1, starting in verse 8, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is general revelation. These are general truths that can be known about God by nature. All men know that a God exists. They suppress that truth and they deny it in order to fulfill the desires of their sinful nature. But they know that a God exists. They're without excuse. Psalm 19 says this as well, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So all people know that a God exists, 
but which God? And this is where God has revealed himself clearly in a special way, in special revelation. This refers to the specific truth about who God is and what he has done, and he's offered this by supernatural means. This is where God has made himself known by prophets, by revealing himself to prophets like Moses on Mount Sinai, and through the apostles who penned the word of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and ultimately, the greatest way that God has revealed himself is in the Son, in Christ's incarnation, where God dwelled with man, making himself known to man and his teachings known to man. For us to worship God, it requires a right knowledge of who God is, and that knowledge comes by the word of God. He must be known as one God in essence and three persons. He must know, be known in his attributes, his infinity, omniscience, omnipotence, faithfulness, goodness, and justice. He must be known in his special works, his acts of creation, his redeeming work, his saving grace, and the work of Christ as mediator. There is a sense that we cannot comprehend the fullness of God as we consider these truths, for they are far above our minds, but we can know him as he's revealed himself in scripture. And if we are to worship this God, we must know who he is, which means we must be informed by the word of God. How can we serve the one whom we do not know? How can we obey the one if we do not know what that one has required? This command requires a right knowledge of God. If we want to worship the true God and worship him rightly, we need to know who that God is and what he has commanded. Romans 10 speaks to evangelism on this, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent brothers and sisters faith comes by hearing the proclamation of the gospel is the means by which people hear who God is what he has done for us in Christ if we desire for those around us to do away with idols and come to knowledge of the true God it must be by them hearing the word of Christ and so it is for us, if we desire to worship God truly and rightly, it comes by the knowledge of Christ. No good service, no worship, and no faith can be grounded in God without some measure, without some measure of a distinct knowledge of who God is. We must know who he is and what he has done to offer our worship to him. This is the first thing that this commandment requires, is that we know who God is. And again, we know by his word. Second, this command requires us to acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. This is from Fisher's Catechism. This command requires us to acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him Accordingly, what does it mean to worship? What does it mean to worship God? It is to acknowledge God 
and all that he has done, it is to perceive and to, cons- to consider God as precious. It is to ascribe worth to him. I think we may be familiar with this um, worthship. You ascribe worth to God. It's confessing and believing and counting God to be worth worshiping. Now, to be clear, God is intrinsically glorious, and he is worthy of all honor and all praise, whether it's given to him or not. It is our duty to acknowledge him as he is. When we worship God, we do not add to God's glory. We do not add to God's glory when we worship him. And if people deny God, his glory does not diminish. God does not diminish in worth if people refuse to worship him. His honor is not dependent on people recognizing him as God. We do not move him to be anything greater than he already is. It is purely our duty to acknowledge God as he is and then grow in our understanding of his value and worth. As we come to a greater knowledge of who he is as he has revealed himself in his word, we then, by God's grace, will grow in sincere sincere worship of him. When we speak of worshiping God, this largely concerns our attitudes towards him. There are attitudes that are owed to God that he will not share with any created thing. And this is what is required, that we worship and have attitudes and a posture of heart towards God that will not be shared by any created thing. So this is what's required. So what is forbidden? It would be the opposite of that. It would be, it forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and that glory to any other which is due to him alone. It denies, it forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and that glory to any other which is due to him alone. So what this is for what we are forbidden from practicing is idolatry. Denying God and worshiping another object, whether that worship be offered externally or internally, to worship a thing in place of the Creator is a sin. And there are uh, two types of idolatry largely, largely. And the first is doctrinal idolatry. Doctrinal idolatry, this is what the pagans do. This is assigning deity to the creature, denying the true God and worshiping the creature outwardly. This is called doctrinal idolatry because it is their doctrine. They worship the moon. Or it is their doctrine, they confess with their mouths that a created thing is God. And this can take many different um, forms. You have those who worship the moon, the sun, and the stars, and uh, ascribe deity to those created things. Um, You have made-up gods that um, pagans may worship, Baal, Artemis, Zeus, whatever, uh, whatever it may be, those who worship objects outwardly and ascribe deity to them are guilty of doctrinal idolatry. 
Now, for those who belong to Christ's church, this is not something that we deal with, right? We confess in our doctrine that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the triune God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We confess there is but one God. But even though we don't deal with doctrinal idolatry, I think there's another type of idolatry that we are prone to give ourselves over to. And this is called practical idolatry. These are those who are idolaters in practice, but not in their doctrine. An example would be someone who says, I do not worship money. I do not put my trust in money. I put my trust in Christ. But their actions speak contrary to what they have just said. Their actions would say, no, you love money and you worship money. You put your trust in money. These are those who practice practical idolatry. These are those who have the secret idols enthroned upon their hearts. And there are many times, I believe even um, uh, among Christians, that we are not, that it's not known to us that it may even be secret. Uh, we may deceive ourselves in believing that we uh, do not love the created things as much as we really do, and our actions will show whether or not we trust in created things. Practical idolatry, I think, is the biggest or the largest danger for the church. In fact, I know it is because every sin that we commit stems from breaking this first commandment, which is having another God. We worship other gods, which is why we break God's command. If we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly in thought, word, and deed, we would never sin ever again, but we do not. So therefore, all kinds of sins come into our lives as a result of breaking this commandment regularly. So I want us to be able to diagnose the idols of the heart that we may be harboring, and again, likely without even knowing it. And I want us to see where it is that we might be breaking this command. And so we must ask ourselves, are we guilty of practicing the very thing that is forbidden in this command? Are we in some way, shape, or form offering our worship to the creature rather than the creator? And to help identify these idols, I want us to look at a few dispositions of the heart. I want to look at our attitudes, and by God's grace, may we come to know our sin this morning. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there is much that could be said about heart postures and all the various ways that we can break this command, um, but I have just a very few, uh, a small list of things for us to consider. These are uh, actions and duties and behaviors that are reserved for God alone that we then may give to others. First, God is to be esteemed and loved above all. So we must ask ourselves, do we have an excessive amount of esteem or love for any created thing? Do we have an excessive amount of respect for any created thing? When our contentment and joy is found in an object so much that we would desire that thing more than communion with God, that would be idolatry. Things that if taken from us, we would cry out in hopeless despair being cast down as if there is no reason to live anymore. There is no purpose to life. 
that can be a sign that you may possibly have an idol. An example of this can be found in Judges 18, 24, when the Danites had taken the household god in Micah's house, and Micah cried out, You take my gods that I made, what have I left? You take my gods that I made, listen to that, that I made, what have I left? You can't help but laugh that this so-called God could not even save itself from being stolen and carried away. It is somewhat of a comical picture, but it's also tragic because we too are guilty of this same sin in different ways. I mean, this can be literally anything. As Calvin uh, said, to paraphrase him, our hearts are idol-making factories. We are prone to take the good gifts that God has given. And we tend to have a greater respect or emphasis uh, in our lives for them than the one who has given them to us. And that's insane we think about that we would love the thing that's been given than the good father who has given the gift to us. Common things that come to mind quickly are things like money. Right? That's a common one. How much do we love our money? And I think it's being revealed in many of us today as inflation is a bit of a minor issue right now. I ask, how would we react if the economy crashed today? Where would our hope be? How would we react? I'm not denying the difficulty that would surely follow if there were to be an economic collapse, collapse today. But we must ask ourselves, would we all lose? Would we lose all of our contentment if it were all taken? And not all idols are physical possessions. Maybe you long to be recognized for your work. Maybe that's, that's an idol, your reputation. Maybe it's your ministry and the reputation in your ministry. Maybe you really esteem the way people perceive you more than you are concerned with the way that God perceives you. These idols are easily identified when they are threatened or could possibly be taken from us. Do you love to be seen as knowledgeable, wise, the smartest person in the room? And if someone challenges you, you then challenges you, then you become defensive rather than engaging and possibly being teachable or possibly even being outright wrong. Is our knowledge and wisdom an idol? God is to be esteemed more highly than we esteem ourselves. He is to be esteemed more highly than we esteem our minds or our reputations or our possessions. We will grow old. Each of, I promise you, each of us will grow old. Our minds will fade. They will grow weak. They may be sharp for some younger, but as you grow old, not so much. Our money will come and it will go. And it comes and goes as soon as it comes into your bank account. What good is it to esteem all these things which are so vulnerable and can be taken from us in an instant? There is no valuable in worshiping these creative things. They are passing. They are passing. But God is not. He is eternal. 
He is true. He is our prize and who we aim to live with eternally on the new earth and in heaven. So that's the first thing. God is to be esteemed and loved above all other things. Do we esteem and love any other created thing more so than God? Second, God is to be feared above all. God is to be feared above all. Are there things in our lives that we fear more than God? One way this idol can show itself is when men or events are more feared than God is self. To such an extent, you're fearing men and events to such an extent that we may fall into sin or become lax in our duties towards God. Do you fear the consequences of proclaiming the truth of Christ crucified for sinners? Are you afraid of telling people in this day and age, male and female, he created them? in order to receive and embrace from the world who hates God? Do you fear the judgment of men rather than the judgment of God? Here's an interesting thought. Enemies, though we do not like them, can be and often are an idol to us. Enemies can be and often are an idol to us. For our brothers and sisters in Canada right now, if they recline in their duties, if they recline in their duties to preach the truth about sodomy and transgenderism and what Christ has done on the cross and that God calls people to repent, what they are doing is bending the knee to the state out of fear of consequences. They pledge their allegiance to the one who hurts them rather than the one who died for them. Their enemy has become their God that they fear and will submit to. Peter knew this sin when he denied Jesus before the Jews out of fear of what would happen to him. For Peter, his enemies became his idol because the fear of what they might do to him. At that moment, he desired the smiles of his enemies rather than the smile of God. Matthew 10, 28 tells us, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Hebrews 10.31, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just as Peter was fearful, do we fear those who can only kill the body? And do we fear those more than the one who can destroy both body and soul? Part of worshiping God and praising God is having a healthy fear of him. And as Christians, we fear him as a heavenly father. This is a filial fear and honor and respect, not a servile fear as one who's being held in a dungeon. We as Christians ought to fear our God who loves us and cares for us more than we fear the government who hates our God. It is foolish to bend the knee to the state and respect them as God in place of the one true God. That's the second way. That's the second attitude that God is to be feared above all. Do we fear others more than God? 
And third, God is to be believed and trusted. He is to be believed and trusted in. Our confidence is to be in him. So we must ask ourselves, do we believe and trust in anything or anyone more than our God? Do we place our trust in presidents and leaders? Do we place our trust in armies to protect us? And if so, if you do place your trust in these people, I would ask, why? What have they done to earn your trust? If someone comes up to you randomly and asks you to trust them, a reasonable question would be to ask, why? Why should I trust you? What have you done? What, what is your track record? Our Lord gives us very good reason to trust him. He has a perfect track record. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is good. He can do absolutely no wrong. He can be nothing other than good. He is not capable of lying to his people or breaking the promises he has made. Consider that. Consider that. He is not capable of lying to you. He is not capable of breaking any promises that he has made. It is not in his nature to lie or to change his mind. He cannot and he will not. He is immutable. Man is not. Why do we trust men who don't even know what's going to happen five minutes from now? Why do we trust armies that plot when there's other armies plotting against them and they don't know what the answer is? Why do we trust kings to bring us salvation, an earthly salvation, when we knew they can do no such thing? Salvation is through Christ. Why do we trust for kings, trusting kings and rulers who have no care for God and his law? Do we believe in, trust in, and have confidence in anything more so than our God. We must search our hearts and ask ourselves, do we love and esteem God over all things? Again, there's many different applications and many different ways that we can look at this. But just ask yourself this, consider this, maybe even write it down if you take notes and consider it through the week. Ask yourself this, do we Love and esteem God over all things. And practically, do we live contrary to that? Also, do we fear God above all other things? Do we fear God above all other things? I'm sure some of you guys are asking yourselves, surely we are permitted to have a measure of love and fear and contentment in some of the things God has given? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is a measure of love and fear and contentment in the gifts that God has given us. We are to love each other. We are to love our spouses, our children, our church. We are to uh, have a respect and decent fear of the government as the authority that God has placed over us. There is a measure that it's allowed. But we need to be very careful with those things that we are allowed to have a measure of fear, love, and, and confidence in, or 
contentment in because those are the things that we are most likely to make idols out of without even realizing it. Those are often the objects that make subtle idols that we do not even realize. These are objects that are lawful. Lawful objects for us to have. Good objects, good things, good gifts. Things like a husband or a wife, things that we desire. That's a good gift to desire a spouse. That's not evil. That's not intrinsically evil. It's not wrong to desire to want children. Children are a good gift. Ask God for children. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to be poor. If you're poor, it's not because God hates you. It's not wrong to desire to have godly leaders either. But if we're not careful, these lawful things that we are allowed to have, because they are good, can then enthrone themselves upon our hearts and we can put too much esteem upon them. What we don't want to do with these good gifts that God has given us is make these things ultimate things. And so there are a few principles. These are very, very short, very brief. A few principles that I think are helpful for us to live by when we consider these good gifts, which we are allowed to have a measure of love and fear and contentment in. Very brief. I have three. First, these good gifts, they are to be used in obedience to God and ought to be used in such a way that it helps us to honor God. Right? When we think of money, what is its purpose? It's to be used to provide for ourselves and for others. Be charitable. Money is to be used as a means to honor God. Hoarding up money is not the end goal. It's not just to have money for yourself so that way when you die there's nothing left. The things that are lawful for us are to be used in obedience to be to, are to be used in obedience to God and ought to be used in such a way that it helps us to honor God. That's the first thing. Second, we are not to rest entirely upon them or allow them to lead us into disobedience to God. We are not to rest entirely upon them or allow them to lead us into disobedience to God, causing us to think of them as if they are God, rather than a gift from God. Our attitudes towards all the gifts that God has given to us ought to be that at a moment's notice, we notice we could cast them aside, or we could be content with the Lord taking it from us, so long as we know more of Christ. That ought to be our disposition that at any moment we could cast them aside from us and be content in our Lord or we'd be content if the Lord has taken it from us. That's the second. And lastly, the last thing to consider is as we use these gifts, what is our purpose for them? Are we using them for the building of our own kingdom? Are we using these things to glorify ourselves, to esteem ourselves, or are we using this for the growth of God's kingdom. I think those are three very helpful things to consider when we think of the sin of idolatry. So how do we turn from idols? We all have idols. That's by the work of the Holy Spirit 
as we look to God and learn more of him, knowing who he is and what he has done. The more that we value God, the more that we see God rightly, and the more we have seen what he has done for us, the more we will learn not to put our trust in temporal things. We will begin to see those things as vain, as empty. And if a good gift, we'll see it as just that, a good gift and a blessing. One way that we turn from idols is to remember the three motivations that our God has given us in the preface to these Ten Commandments. That He is the Lord, Yahweh, that He is our God, and He has delivered us. He has delivered us. Christ has loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Remember those who have placed your faith in Christ. This law is impossible for us to keep perfectly. Every time, as I've mentioned earlier, it is a sin because we do not love God as we should, because we do not esteem him highly, is because we do not fear him rightly as our Heavenly Father. But we must remember, as we always try to when we come to the law, that this law is not meant to discourage you or harm you. It is meant for your good. It is meant to show you your sin and direct you in the way that you should go. Christ has already obeyed this law perfectly in your place. He has already died the wrath that you deserved. And because you have been delivered from that household of slavery to sin, you are now Christ's possession. And now may we go forth and strive to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. May we see our sin in this command. May our idols be exposed. And may God give us the grace and wisdom to live rightly and do rightly with all things that God has given us. Bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that has been shown for us in your only Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for those idols that we have either knowingly allowed to place themselves in our hearts or maybe even in secret. We ask that if we have seen our sin, convict us. And if we are truly convicted, and we truly have faith, may we place our hope and trust in the Son and be resolved to go on, to go forth, and sin no more. Lord, we cannot rid ourselves of idols by ourselves and on our own, our own strength. That is a heart change that we need, and so we need you, God, who loves us to work in our hearts. We ask that you would do these things in the name of your Son, for his sake, in your glory. Amen.